Trouble Magazine would like to thank its sponsors. Ararat Gallery Tama, Bendigo Living Art Space, Fox Galleries Melbourne, Manningham Gallery, Swan Hill Regional Art Gallery, Wangaratta Art Gallery and Western Sydney University. Thanks for your support. What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr Mark Halloran, and you're listening to Deep Trouble. We're back in the studios of Main FM here, another episode of Deep Trouble, and I've got Mark in the studio. G'day, Mark. Hi, Steve. How are you going? It's great to be here. Oh, oh yeah, you're only just saying that because it's true. <laughs> hey, we've got uh, Carmel Bird. You're going to interview Carmel Bird today. Yes, yes. So Carmel Bird is an award-winning author. She won the Patrick White Award um, for Literature. Um, we're going to be talking about her work, and in particular focusing on one work which is uh, called Fair Game. A lot of the interview, well, at least the first part of the interview, is about her growing up in Tasmania. What an amazing place to grow up, don't you think? Uh, yeah, it was interesting to hear her experiences growing up in Tasmania. Obviously, it's got a, a reasonably dark colonial past. She loves skeletons in cupboards, and there must be... Well, I mean, that state is renowned for the skeletons in its cupboard. Well, yeah, I mean, H.G. Wells uh, based the War of the Worlds on the colonisation by the British of Tasmania. Interestingly enough, if we're talking about authors. I've never heard that theory. Well, actually, Steve Proposh has just released an anthology about it, and it's in the foreword. Um, it's, it's quite well known, I think. I think it's quite a well-established fact. If you look at it, it's about colonisation by an alien force, terraforming all those sorts of things that occurred in Tasmania, introduction of new species, sheep and cattle. Oh, mind you, Carmel Bird doesn't write about these particular issues. No, Carmel Bird's Fair Game is about the first convict women who were taken to Tasmania to be introduced, they thought, as wives to respectable squatter husbands, but essentially what happened to them, um, you know, the brutal reality that they faced in Tasmania. Mm. She's a beautiful writer. I think she's able to communicate something about human experience, so your experience as a human being, and put it into words in a way that you couldn't. And so great writers can do that across time and geography. So a writer that was writing 50 or 60 years ago might say something about my experience of life that resonates with me in a way that I could never have put into words as effectively. Mm. Well, Carmel Bird's no stranger to the studios of Main FM or to Main FM listeners, and we're sure that you'll get uh, a lot out of this interview. So, what about we hear it? Let's hear Mark Heller in conversation with novelist Carmel Bird. Carmel, welcome. Oh, hello, Mark. So, I'm here with Carmel Bird. I know that you grew up in Tasmania and, and a lot of your work seems to focus back on Tasmania yes, and I wanted to talk to you about your childhood in Tasmania yes. and growing up. Okay, I grew up in Launceston with like a, a mother, a father, a sister, a brother and then living next door to us was my mother's sister and her husband, my uncle and my three girl cousins and all the girls were older than I was or am 
and the boy was younger than all of us, okay? So he was eight years younger than me and so there were five girls and I was the bottom of five girls. Right. And I think that is significant. You know how the place that you have in the family affects who you are and how you are and what you are and everything. Like the idea of birth order. Birth order. Yeah. Well, you're giving it a, an academic name and I'm yeah. fooling around with it. Yes. yes. <laughs> and so it's a very interesting dynamic, all that. Yeah. So I'm the youngest girl and have certain behaviours and strategies and so on that come from that. Of course, I yeah. have inborn characteristics as well. But then eight years later, there's the boy and he's my baby brother. He's their baby brother. But yes. my relationship with him was really closer than the relationship that any of the other girls had with him. Why do you think and, that is? Oh, because they were all older. You know, it's and, just and, a it's just a thing that, that proximity essentially. That thing, in age. Yes, yes. Your relationship with your mother and father. Uh, who do you feel like you were close to? Oh, I don't know. I, I felt very nurtured by both of them. I felt nurtured by the five girls, but of, of course I was also in a kind of competition with the five girls and finding out ways to gain elements of power in that right. five-angled collection of girls. Competition and for what? Attention and power. From? And How do you mean from? Well, who are you, in, are you? If you're looking for attention, who are you looking oh, well, attention I, for attention I, I wouldn't say I was actually setting out to seek attention but every human being has to get the attention of the world and I had a, a, a particularly colourful cast of characters among whom you mean move, your siblings yeah well yeah. The, one girl sibling three girl cousins yes. all different all with different talents and points of view and so forth and it was a very exciting, rich childhood for all of that. And my uncle next door was a timber merchant. My father was an optometrist. Our mothers didn't go out to work, but yeah. did things like the Red Cross. See, this was the 40s. Right. So they were doing Red Cross, stuff like that. So the war was on. Oh, my word. I was yeah. born at the... Just after the beginning of the Second World War. 1940. So, yeah, yep. born in 1940. And so the first five years of my life in Launceston, Tasmania, a million miles from the war, yes. was very much influenced by the war. Neither of the fathers in these two families were enlisted. Right. So they're both still working in Launceston. Yes. But the radio was on all the time. My mother and all the girls knitted bandages for yes. the troops. And I know this sounds as though I was some kind of gifted knitter. As a very, very little girl, I knitted white bandages. Right. The war ended when I was five. So, well, there would have been the post war years. Post war well, bandages as well. <laughs> well. I guess, like your yeah. memory of, of what life was like, yes. you know, sort of. The later part of the 40s mm. and into the 50s. Sure. Uh, in Tasmania, because yeah. I got the sense, uh, I mean, there were some really nice recollections of mm. being with your father in the orchard, but yes. there's something psychological about the landscape in Tasmania that, that I kind of Ooh, get yes. from mm. you reading. Uh, yes, and that. it's not only the landscape, it's a beautiful landscape, of course, yes. just 
somewhere to be and some something to look at the sky and the trees yeah. and the and the water and the rocks and everything the forests and the wildlife because even as a child it seemed like you felt like it was a special place well i did i did i felt I know that in hindsight it sounds as though one is romanticising it, and no doubt I am. But I sincerely believe and recall finding the whole thing magical. And you see, the history of Tasmania is a a dark history. And my father was a great reader and a great collector of books and had many books of history and natural history, there was one pair of two big books called the Cyclopedia of Tasmania and my brother has the originals of those but I have facsimile copies of them which are now available from a publisher in Hobart. I bought them a few years ago and I poured over those. Now, I mean, maybe that's a funny thing for a seven-year-old girl to be doing. I don't know but... They fascinated me. They're black and white photographs of old blokes with white beards and little bits of information about indigenous things, little bits about indigenous things, nothing whatsoever, nothing about a convict history. But at a very early age, I became very fascinated by what was under the rocks, by the indigenous and the convict history of the island and I used to do a naughty thing. Nearby where we lived, there was a disused quarry and I liked the rock faces of that disused quarry and I used to draw imitation Aboriginal art on the walls of the quarry and then I would invite other children to go there and see the Aboriginal art which I had discovered. Yes. And they could give me a couple of comics or something and I would take them and show them this marvellous thing that I had, you know, discovered. It's like entrepreneur. Uh, well, it was a bit entrepreneurial, yeah. It was, was also yeah. f- fraud. Mm. And, uh, and I remember when I was in high school, our school had Launceston High. Yes. We had an exchange of essays with a school in the United States and the children there were meant to write essays about their part of their country and we would write essays about our part of our country and exchange them and, and publish them in our magazines and things like that. Well, I wrote, this was in what we would now call Year 11, I wrote an essay exploring the convict history and the indigenous history of yeah. Tasmania. And this was my first and really rather important, very important experience of censorship because the teacher said, it's a very good essay, as essays go, but we can't send it because it misrepresents... I can't remember how she expressed herself, but what she meant was that it presented an image of Tasmania that was not going to be let out of Tasmania. It wasn't going to the United States, thank you very much. So I was censored. And well, you felt a sense of injustice. Children sensed that. Oh yes, very I, I, early on. Oh, I knew, I knew. Well, I was quite old, you know. I was, I was probably sixteen or something right. at the time. And uh, adolescents even have a greater keener sense of injustice. <laughs> Those marvelous kids that yeah. marched the other day. Yeah. But um, about climate change. Anyway, so I felt censored at the time, and I think that it did me a great service that I felt. The power, if I hadn't felt it before, which in fact I had, but I very much felt the power 
of my essay and of my thoughts and of my, of my research and of my interests. And I knew what the teacher was up to right. and I knew what I was up to and it was good for me. It was very good. Yes. Yeah, I'm glad she did that. Otherwise, I might, I might not recall that I ever wrote the essay for that well, matter. Well, there's something about... Yeah. Uh, Going against the group or going sure. against authority, isn't it? Sure. Because not everyone can do that. Mm, that's right. Yes. You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Carmel Bird, author and winner of the Patrick White Prize. I was going to ask you about your book, which is a memoir, which interestingly enough begins with an epigram, a fictional epigram, um, for called Fair Game. And I just wanted to talk to you about the lithograph that, yes. that appears on the front. Could you okay, describe well, that? Yes. Well, Fair Game is a very small book consisting of just an essay, which yes. is a memoir of a kind of my thoughts and memories about growing up in Tasmania. But what prompted me to write this particular memoir essay was a lithograph from 1832 and it's a picture like a cartoon which on first glance looks like a fabulous flock of fantasy butterflies just fluttering brilliantly across the whole picture. Then when you look closely at it you'll see that the butterflies are actually women and they are 19th century women with fancy hairdos and jewellery and stuff. Yeah, they're very fancy women. They don't look particularly respectable, a bit floozy. Right. <laughs> and, um, How can we tell that? Uh, we, can, we can tell that by their self-presentation and their low, their decolletage and, and so oh, forth. Low cuts. Uh, low cut tops. And then if you look more closely, you can see, yes, they're flying through the sky and beneath them is the sea. And on the sea, there are a couple of little ships moving, <laughs> sailing. Yes. This, sail- is, this is the coast of Devonport, isn't it? Or, no, uh, wait a minute. No, wait a minute. No, yes. let me talk. Sure. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> That's so rude. No, no. That's okay. Um, the, the sea is, in fact, moving from... On the left-hand side, England. Yes. And on the right-hand side, Tasmania. Right. And it's not Devonport, in fact. It is down south. It's Hobart. Right. But you don't really know that until you have had the picture analysed for you. But very, very tiny drawings on the English bit and tiny drawings on the Tasmania, Van Diemen's Land bit tell you that in England there are nasty women with brooms shooing something, uh, it's the butterflies, shooing the butterflies out of England. We don't want these women here. Then in Tasmania, sorry, in Van Diemen's Land, the most visible, tiny though, most visible image is of a man with a very prominent butterfly net and he's going to catch one or some of these. And then there are other men on Van Diemen's Land who are making little comments implying that they are going to catch a butterfly and yes. run off with it and it'll it'll be his his butterfly his girlfriend his his wife his servant now the story of the thing is this that in 1832 people like elizabeth fry who was a, an english woman quaker concerned with goodness and christianity 
in the colonies. An evangelical Christian. Yes. Yeah, the, the, the group in uh, in yeah, in yeah. England uh, were the, a society which set up the protectorate systems in Victoria. Yes, if it's yes. the same, if it's Similar. the same Christian groups, yeah. Similar, and they had organised for a ship called the Princess Royal to take a group of non-convict women, no men, just good women would be transported from England for a very small fee and go to Van Diemen's Land and become wives and servants for the men in Van Diemen's Land, which was highly overpopulated by men, not yes. enough girls there, for being wives or servants or other things. And so these girls were collected, and it, it turned out that most of them were not particularly virtuous people. The, the desire was and the idea was that they would be good, virtuous, Jane Austen-type heroines or something but they mainly came from the workhouse and places like that well i got the sense from your story that yes. there's a story at the end that yes. it was almost like a, a kind of indenture that, that, that is pe- right. people are brought over and they're told yeah. one thing yes. they're told that there's going to be uh, a new life yes uh, an opportunity for uh, opportunity. maybe to get married it, 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 or a different yes, social oppo- situation. Opportunity to rise in the world, yes. in the new world, in this wonderful place called Van Diemen's Land where you have a choice of situations, a choice of men, a cho- you know. Yeah, but this is a class uh, thing as well because these, these were poor women. They were poor, yeah. yes. So yes. Uh, the, and something happened to them in terms of the story, the way that you depict it in the story is quite... Yes, I have written a, a very short story at the end of the essay, yes. certainly, which is told from the point of view of one of the women and how betrayed she was. Yes. Well, it does remind me, I mean, when I went to um, the last time I was at Tasmania, mm. went to a, an old settlement, a station outside of, I think it was Launceston, mm. And it was large, about 32,000 acres back mm-hmm. then. So it was, it was gifted to a family that, that colonized and came and settled. And, and they told the story of locking the servant women up because mm. men would kidnap them. Yes. And take them away and yes. rape them. And uh, yeah. so it was quite dangerous. And put them into all kinds of servitude. Yes. And in Richmond prison, women would be sharing the prison yard with men as well, mm. which you could imagine how brutal. I mean, life is brutal for poor men. Sure. As well. Mm. But it seemed to me when I read your story, mm. it ends or towards the end it comes with the broken wings of a crumpled, crazy, crackpot, mouth-faced butterfly. Right. Mm. Yes. All right. That's so quite terrible. <laughs> yeah. It's a wonderful, yeah. uh, wonderful turn of phrase though. <laughs> but, I mean, it, it, it drove home, I mean, because I think underneath that, and I've talked to historians like uh, Nick Brody about this. Yes. Uh, the... Uh, uh, Tasmania's dark past. Mm. You know, 160,000 people were uh, taken from England to Australia. Mm. 20% of political prisoners. Mm. Uh, the Irish, they try to wipe out their language, mm. Gaelic. Mm. Mm. With Aboriginal people, of course, you've got the Black Line. And that was. And the Black War. Mm. And the Black War, which was has remained covered up to some extent. Mm. And almost ended with the, the extinction of an entire race of people. Yes, well, there was an attempt to wipe out a race of people. It failed. But the popular history of Van Diemen's Land or Tasmania for many years has been that it was a successful genocide. But yes. you see, it wasn't. It wasn't successful. Yes. The descendants of 
the Indigenous Tasmanians who were there when the British arrived. It's always hard to find a verb for what they did. I'll call it arrived. Yes. It was, was settler was, colonization. Mm, yeah. Well, yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> that's the that's the uh, I think that's the, the accepted term the today, historically yeah. correct term. Okay, yeah. fair enough. We know what we mean anyway. Yeah. The idea was to obliterate the indigenous people yes. and it didn't work. But as you were saying, it very nearly did. And yeah. it was an extraordinarily brutal time. Yeah, the history is complex in terms of that. You've got people on the scene. You've got Governor Arthur, mm. who was seen as a uh, humanitarian up mm. to that point, and mm. John Batman mm. essentially started his career in Tasmania and, and was on the black line and had executed Aboriginals that he'd taken prisoner, mm. essentially. It seemed as though, although the history is that they had conciliators like Robinson, Robinson. who George was Augustus the uh, chief protector here as well, that the movement of the, the, the conciliation was the movement of Aboriginals onto the islands, and that ended with starvation and, de- and disease and death disease, as well. yes. So aside Very from their considered campaign, there were lots of complicated political factors. That certainly. Yeah, I know that, that was important to you because you've written about the stolen generation, stolen children. Yes, my interest in the way one race treats another persisted after yes. my childhood into adulthood. It was it based um, on your experiences mm, as a child? Mm, mm. Um, and I realised when I was older that some of the children at my primary school were Indigenous children. I didn't realise that at the time. They are orphans in the book, I think you said. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a, a friend of my mother couldn't have children and she adopted a girl who was not Indigenous and then she adopted a boy and he was this adorable brown child with wonderful curly hair and everything and it wasn't until long, long afterwards I realised what his background was. He was an Indigenous orphan. Yes. Anyway, the stolen children, okay. In, was it 1998, the government brought out a report called Bringing Them Home. It was a huge government report and it cost a lot of money to buy at the time. It was $64, I think, which was a lot of money to pay for a book in 1998. When that report came out, I bought a copy and quickly read it and I rapidly thought everybody in Australia, everybody in the world needs to know all this stuff and they're not going to because this book is going to go into libraries and a few people are going to buy it and read it but it's not going to go as far as it should go. So I contacted a publisher and said that I would like to get permission to extract from that report the stories told by the members of the Stolen Generations, which were quite short narratives of what they had said to the people interrogating them about their lives for the report. And so I got that permission and I extracted the stories and I put it together in a book that is still for sale. It retails at about $24 and is used easily used in in schools and universities and so that part of the report has gone out into the public domain. Did you meet with the people as well who offered their stories or who were interrogated? No. I met one person whose story is in the book but I met her independently of my work on the book. Right. 
her name is Donna and that is her real name. The names of all the others are false names. They had false names in the report and they retained their false names and I communicated with their lawyers, not with them. Right. They had to be protected because of the things that they said. You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Carmel Bird, author and winner of the Patrick White Prize. I suppose it seems like you've about strong it. feelings about sure. it, this. You would have lived through the white Australia policy. Yes, I was. I've never really thought of it like that. Right. <laughs> but do, you, do you not have recollections of what life was like at, oh, of course at I that do. time? Yeah. Of course I do. I, I was in high school when refugees were brought into the community to work on the electricity project called the, yes. the hydroelectric company in Tasmania, famous for it, and the Snowy Mountains kind of is the big Australian one, but yes. but in Tasmania, refugees. And so into my school came girls, I don't remember any refugee boys really, but I was a, a good girl at yes. school and I've changed, but I was assigned two Dutch girls. Right. You know, it was all very nicely done. Yeah. Here is a nice girl who will look after these two Dutch girls. Yes. Well, I've heard it said that it was a Labor government at the time. Mm. It was in the 1950s. Mm. And they felt as though that integration was handled as best as it possibly could be from Mm. that government. The term was New Australians. Of course. Yes, I had forgotten it. Yes. (laughs) They were New Australians. New Australians. (laughs) Oh, Um, isn't that awful? (laughs) And we shouldn't even laugh. Uh, But but still, they still would have faced considerable challenges in terms of integration into into the Australian communities. But you see, they were trying, the authorities were trying by giving two girls to me and two girls to someone else to integrate them and look after them and explain things to them and notice their sandwiches which were wrong yes and (laughs) so forth and they were two lovely dutch girls and one of them was not very intelligent and one of them was as clever as clever as clever she was brilliant right and i don't know what became of either of them i wish i did but Nettie was was the clever one's name and she must have gone and done something incredible yes yeah I mean, what are your recollections of growing up during that time and the attitudes of the community in terms of, you know, either it's uh, refugees or immigrants or Aboriginal people? There was nothing about Aboriginal people. Nothing? Nothing. Nothing. I mean, there was this little boy who was adopted by my mother's friend, but he wasn't acknowledged as being Indigenous. And at that time in Tasmania... I was not conscious of anything truly Indigenous in the community of the day. I was intent on doing Aboriginal art and stuff, but that's different. The Tasmanian community, I have a sense and a memory that it welcomed these, in inverted commas, new Australians and was prepared to celebrate them and learn from them and to get... Italian cooking going. Yes. And learn some Dutch. So the, it, the community it was, did it felt yeah. as though the community did embrace people. Oh it did. Yeah. It did. Yes. For sure. Yes. 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 Oh yes. Well, you see it was a very Anglo community in Tasmania, generally yes. speaking. And from a very early age I spent a lot of time 
in the museum where there was a Joss house. Sorry? A no. Chinese Joss house, okay, which was just fantastically beautiful. Oh. And I would drift around. You could walk all through it. These days it's behind glass in the museum. It's n- not the way it was then. But then you could walk into what was and is called the Queen Victoria Museum. Yes. And, <laughs> and, uh, and walk straight into a Chinese Joss house. Right. And I actually can trace in my own taste in interior design, if I can call it that, the way my house seems to set itself up, I can actually trace it back to the Joss house. If you were to come round to my house, you would find that the main room is drenched in red stuff. Right. Like a Joss house. I mean, it's nothing like a Joss house, but I can trace it back Perhaps I was I was responding to something in myself anyway, but I loved that Joss house and I can see the Joss house in my house now. And I can tell you that I've only just put those two things together as I've right. been talking to you. Right. Because right? I haven't thought about the Joss house for a long time. Well, I wanted to talk to you about your collection as well, My Hearts Are Your Hearts. Oh, yes. And so there's, there is a story called Waiting to be Seated. I'm not going to talk about it. Yeah. I'm not going to ruin it for people if they haven't right. read it. Yeah. I like the ending. There's there's something about a, a few of the endings that you do that remind me a little bit of Rabin Carver for some reason. That's a very nice compliment, yes. So I wanted to ask you, considering we've mentioned him, what you think we talk about when we talk about love. I love that story. I love a lot of his stories. I yeah. meant for you, your own personal experience. Oh, what do we talk about when we talk about love? Yeah. Gosh, the meaning of love. <laughs> yeah. Well, was... I think you warned me. I did, yeah. You did? <laughs> um, oh, my hearts are your hearts. I can't, I have not got myself together to talk about this, really. Right. Do you I, want to talk about it? I don't know. I love lots of people, starting first of all with my daughter and my grandchildren and You've friends. You've been in love? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. You've been in love? Me? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good. Okay. Well, then you, you, you're you across that. Everyone's experience is different, though, I think, and, well, and, and comparable. Yeah, different and comparable. There's a feeling of, of being completed by another being. Yes. By um, meeting someone who seems to not just respond to one, but to whom one responds and this goes back and forth and makes something beautiful and new. Seems to. Did I, I say those, seem? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a quote at the end of the book which is one of my favourite biblical quotes. What is it? I can't remember. It's Jeremiah 17.9. It's from the King James Version. It would be version, the King James Version. Um, yeah. Which is the best version. In terms yeah. of, it's a Protestant version. Well, I version. think so, yeah. In terms of the language. Yes. And I often talk about it because because people will often say it's, a, it's you've heard people say before, well you know the heart wants what the heart wants, mm. and I instantly think I was raised a Roman Catholic, mm. uh, taken to church uh, from the time I was born up until mm. the time I was about twenty, mm. and my mind instantly goes to, yes, but the heart is deceitful above all things. Oh yes, mm. yes, yes. Isn't it? yeah. I remember putting that in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. desperately wicked. Yeah, but, just, I, but I don't really go on to that part, but I think it yeah. is. Yeah. It doesn't always tell the truth. No. Complicated. 
Yeah. Sometimes I feel what I would say is pure love. Yes. Like for my grandchildren, it's just pure love. And also for pets, you can feel a pure love. Some people might say unconditional. Unconditional. And it's an attraction. I am attracted to the innocence of the children and the innocence of the pets. Yes. Of course, dig into them and they're not innocent at all. (laughs) No. But they, they have a certain innocence and a certain freshness and trailing... Clouds of glory. It's their relationship too as well, isn't it? Certainly, I think children and animals, Mm. the way that they relate and trust Mm. seems Mm. sometimes unconditional. It does. Which which is what a lot of people search for. Yes. And uh, I think that trust is a huge part of love. Yes. There's research that shows that trust is the foundation of a relationship. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there is. I mean, who needed research? Well, sometimes research is... Sometimes research is all right. ...useful. Sometimes it it tells you things that you already knew and sometimes it's counterintuitive. Sure. Yes. But, yeah, yeah, trust is like the foundation. If you you Mm. can't trust someone, then... Then you... (laughs) (laughs) There are no words. Yeah. 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 So what's your experience of trust? Trust. Is it easy to trust people? It can be. So much of life depends on trust. You buy a cup of coffee, you trust they're not going to poison you. Well, eh? it's a, I guess There's there are degrees, different degrees, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. But in I mean, a relationship, uh, you kind of place your feelings in the, in hands, the hands of someone, of someone else. else. Yes. And often things begin, well, With, they seem utopian and glorious. Yes. It's a, a phase mm-hmm. called limerence. Yes, that's the one. Yeah. And then it can be that you discover that... The person wasn't as trustworthy, as worthy of trust as one had imagined. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think we all discover that people are just people. They are. The rose-coloured glasses come off. Yeah. I was going to talk to you also about your last book, which is your latest book, which is Family Skeleton. Family Skeleton would be my latest Book after Family Skeleton, I do have a collection of short fiction which was produced only as an e-book, as an experiment. Yes. It's an exciting experiment. And that's uh, called The Dead Aviatrix, right. but you may not know about that. I, I saw the uh, advertisement yeah, yeah. for the book. Yeah. The book's about death. What's about death? Family Skeleton. Family Skeleton's about it death. It seems like it's about death. It's, uh, oh, yes, of course, the family is, a, is uh, a family of undertakers, yes. And it more or less starts with the funeral of the matriarch of the family of undertakers. And uh, there's a lot of fun made about death in it. Well, it is very facetious. I would hesitate to call it facetious, I think. It what would you call it? be ironic. And ironic. Satirical. Yes. Uh, facetious is a bit frilly. Is it? <laughs> well, what we have to clarify here, yes. I think, Mark, is that the narrator of the story is a skeleton, and that is established early on, and he is... I didn't realise it was a he. Well, it's there. Is it? It tells you. I yes. missed it. Missed well, you missed yeah. it. Well, because quite often, if the author of a novel is a female... And there is a narrator, 
readers assume that the narrator is a female. Do they? They that's do. A, that's they, a psychological... That's yeah, a, I think yeah. it seems yeah. that that is I, so. I had just assumed that yes. both the main protagonist and, and the, and the, the writer were female. Female, yeah. no. No. He's even named George. Ah. Yeah. But you missed it. It doesn't matter. I, I do little, I I do little things. It no, yeah. no, please don't. It yes. doesn't matter. Yes. Skeleton is a skeleton is a skeleton. Well, yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Deep Trouble, Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Carmel Bird, author and winner of the Patrick White Prize. I've been to a lot of wakes, like Roman Catholic wakes. Yes. I haven't been to very many, but I have been to some. I've had to do a lot of the eulogies in my family because (gasps) my family aren't big on writing or talking and things like that, Mm. particularly in public. But you're good at it. They feel like I'm the person who can do it. Get Mark. Yeah. It's hard because when someone who mm. you love dies, yes. I have to fight through. I'm happy to do that, fight through the eulogy to kind of get yes. the message across because sure. I might be quite upset at points. I come from yes. a, a family of Stoics as well who don't right. believe in males being upset. So right. they're, they're And anyway, when you're making a speech, it's always best not to crack up. Well, I, I sometimes think we're a little bit frightened. We inoculate ourselves from emotion in in our particular culture. Sure, I agree with you there. The but thing, when you're making a speech to a yes. group of people, they are putting themselves in your hands, as yes. it were, back to this trust thing, yes. and they want your strength. Yes. So, so I, yes. I've been raised a Stoic on, on a okay. farm, Yes. Um, and so I, I do hold it together until the end. My sure. voice might quaver a little bit or yes. something. I think one of the interesting things about wakes, uh, what I like is that they serve alcohol at Roman Catholic ones yes. and people drink a lot. Mm-hmm. And people laugh a lot. Laughing and drinking Once they and start playing drinking. the violin, yes. Yeah. So, And that's what I thought about when I thought about this book was that the the, the mirth in death, mm. of facing death with yeah. humour. Yes. Well, the, the skeleton can do that and also the husband of the matriarch, the dead husband of the matriarch, does that. Yes. <laughs> we lost the lights. <laughs> yes, I know. He is the director of the funeral business and makes a lot of death jokes and sets up a cemetery that's a bit like Disneyland yes. out on the edges of Melbourne somewhere Yeah, and has a lot of fun there himself. Yeah. He yeah. sends out epigrams, which are sort of like epitaphs. Yes. I can't remember any of them and I didn't bring the book with me, but each chapter begins, has a, with, it begins with one of his little silly sayings about death. Yeah. yeah. Funny things. Yeah. yeah. Some of them, yeah, some, some of them I think are biblical quotes, some of them are Shakespeare, some of them are things he made up himself, but he yes. owns all of them. If, yes. he, if he puts in a Shakespearean quote, he will, he will say it's his. E.R. O'Day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Edmund Rice O'Day, you know who Edmund Rice was. Yeah. Mm. What's your experience of grief and loss? Or I guess, what do you think about grief and loss? We all have to have grief and loss. Being born is being born to die. And being human means having other humans who disappear from your life somehow and often by dying. And it's something that everyone has to confront, the loss of family members, friends, people you love in various ways, sorry for your loss. Does it make it any easier? They're they're condolences, aren't they? 
Um, That's what people say. They say, I'm sorry for your loss. There's well, I'm sorry for your loss. It does mean that the other person who is saying, I'm sorry for your loss, is acknowledging the death of your family member or friend yes. and is in empathy and sympathy with your sorrow yes. and your mourning. I'm always very fascinated by the mourning of Queen Victoria. I'm very interested in Queen Victoria. Why? She, she was a phenomenal historical... Identity. Phenomena. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Phenomenon. Yes. Yeah, phenomenal phenomenon. There must be something yeah. that you've, about qualities that she possesses, something about her. She was a very... Uh, she's very fascinating. She was, well, she's fascinated more people than me, but she was very young had been brought up very strangely and was a woman in a man's world like Elizabeth I. I'm not as interested in Elizabeth I as I am in Queen Victoria, possibly because Victorian stories and history and so on were more available to me as, as a child than stuff about Queen Elizabeth I. How did we get onto this? Oh, her mourning, yeah. Um, I have always been, as many people have, fascinated by the performance and depth and breadth and lack of colour. I was going to say colour, but it's lack of colour. Yes. Uh, of her mourning for Albert. You were impressed by the the dedication. I suppose. Because it sounds like it had weight. Sure did, yes. Yeah, yes. There's, I mean, there can be something romantic about mourning in that respect. Oh, yes. Well, it was romanticised yes. and romanticised in jewellery and fashion. And there's a very interesting book I've got called Mauve, yes. which is uh, uh, the history of the colour mauve and the man who discovered or invented mauve. Someone invented it. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry to say I forget his name because I haven't right. read the book for a long time. Very interesting. Mm. And that became very, very fashionable. Yeah. Uh, well, I suppose it sounds like they the, – I don't know very much about Queen Victoria, but it's, uh, it sounds like the, they had an incredibly strong relationship. There was something very deep about their relationship. Yes. It's like when you hear about an old couple that have been married for many, many years and then one dies – and then the other one dies shortly after. They, they, people heart. die of a broken heart. It's a physiological Fact. phenomenon. Yeah. Yes. So, but I think there's something that appeals. Appeal is the wrong word, but that that really resonates with people about that. About that finding of someone. Yes, resonates with is a very good term. The tragedy, because yes. people hope to some extent. A lot of people hope for that for themselves. That connection. Mm-hmm. I think. Mm. I think mm. I have. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I've lost you there. Well, I guess I was wondering whether seeing that grief is kind of, it has something to do with seeing the, the people that lose love that's so strong, mm. the tragedy of that. Mm. And then we relate that to the tragedy in our own lives. Yeah, I suppose so. Yes. Yeah. It's like the death of Princess Diana, which unleashed such emotion is still something beyond understanding, but it was real and it's still going on. <laughs> yeah. I've heard GPs say to people, 
oh, well, your wife's died, you know, you could be in grief for the next eight weeks or something like that. Oh, yes, uh, <laughs> for the you rest know, of your life. So if you sure. love someone, it yeah. feels as though that the two are intertwined and yes. unfortunately the down payment for loving people mm. is the pain mm. that you have for the rest of your mm. life. Mm. But there's no rose without thorns, Mark. No. Mm. No, I know. Pick that up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I, I do remember that. Yeah. I guess there are no words for tragedy. Are there? Shakespeare had a go. Yeah. <laughs> How did he do? <laughs> <laughs> I think he did fairly well. Yeah. yeah. Yes. I recently saw Twelfth Night, which of course is not a tragedy. It's a comedy, but it has its bitter side. I don't yes. know whether you know that play. But it's it's very funny, but there are also, there's a thread, of course there always is in good comedy, there's a thread yes. of horror and tragedy. And Malvolio is the, the sad thing in yes. that play. Yeah. Do you face your own mortality oh, with, yes. with humour? It seems as though... Oh, I don't know about good humour, but no. I do know that it's inevitable and you never know whether it's... Of course you don't know whether no. it's going to be quick or long and drawn out and horrible. Yes. There can be anxiety around that. I try to avoid anxiety and stress in everything. Right. Try to. I mean, I know that there are times when, I don't know, you're running running late for an appointment and, and you, you, you know, you drive in a stressful way or something yes. like that. But I do, uh, one of the main rules of life for me is to avoid stress. There was a philosopher who uh, went on a campaign with Alexander the Great mm-hmm. in India, and when he came back... I he, don't know this story. It's a good story. Yes. He came back, he'd lost all anxiety because he possessed no opinion. So he would actually put himself in danger. His friends would have to steer him away from cliffs because he didn't care about himself or anything. I always thought that was an interesting it idea. Is. It's a very interesting idea. I wonder who that was. I can't remember. I wish I'll, I could. No, well, I can look it up. I mean, Alexander yeah. the Great, yeah. philosopher. Yes, campaign to India. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Deep Trouble. Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Carmel Bird, author and winner of the Patrick White Prize. Yeah. Butterflies. So uh, yeah. I think uh, taking back to butterflies, the butterfly comes as an image in the work fair game and other, oh, it's everywhere in my work uh, there's an image around the butterfly there yeah. is. so what is the butterfly to you i don't know i can talk about it endlessly right. <laughs> that's maybe what we're here for yes it's a symbol of the psyche there's that it's a yeah. lot of things yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's the ephemeral nature of life and it's beautiful and it's transient Bright, dark. I remember my first conscious encounter with butterflies. When I was three, it was Christmas. I'd turned three in August and it was then it was Christmas next after. And every Christmas Eve we used to visit my grandmother, my mother's mother, and she would give us silver coins for Christmas. So we visited her on Christmas Eve in the daytime and I ran around her garden where there were vegetables and among the vegetables were white cabbage moths which are sometimes called 
cabbage butterflies anyway. They're very beautiful. They, they, well, they are. They're plain, but they're beautiful. Plain, plain, yeah. but beautiful. And I discovered many years later that butterfly had been introduced to Tasmania the same year I was born. So later on I, I became quite attached to the idea of having arrived in Tasmania at the same time as the white cabbage butterfly arrived. Yes. But that's not really part of the story. Yes. The story is that that Christmas Eve yes. is marked by the fact that that grandmother died. On Christmas Eve? Yeah. Were you close to her? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a terrible thing to have associated with Christmas. It's bad. Bad, yeah. But it's also associated in my memory with the butterflies in the garden because I chased them and tried to catch them and chased them and tried to catch them yes. among the vegetables. There's a scene and in your book where they release butterflies but they don't release. And they <laughs> oh, that, yes. Oh, that, that's such an awful thing that people do. <laughs> they, they buy beautiful butterflies yes. and put them in a box and take them to a funeral and then let them out. Mm. And half the time the butterflies have come from Queensland and are released in on Mount Nelson or something in yes. Hobart, and they don't know where to go, what to do, and they just die, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah, okay. So, yes. um, and this thing about, you know, releasing doves and releasing butterflies, I find it very unpleasant. It sounds like you find it a little absurd. I hadn't got as far as absurd. I just think it's cruel. Unpleasant and cruel. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, to what? go back to, yeah, so there's the... It's 1940, I arrive, the butterfly arrives. Three years later, I chase the butterflies in my grandmother's garden. That night, my grandmother dies, and the white butterfly is imprinted forever on my heart. Right. Yes. And thereafter, shortly after the age of three, I became a writer, and thereafter, butterflies fluttered through my work. There are so many of them in my work. In fact, I've written a little essay on this very topic, which is published this month in Island Magazine, for what it's worth. Mm. Well, I guess, I mean, you've related in the book, you related butterflies to lots of different things, female mm. genitalia. Yep. There's a part deep in your brain called the cerebellum, which forms the perfect shape of a butterfly. There is. And I always wondered mm. whether that was something to do with the psyche, whether early anatomists had just noticed that. Possible. Possibly. Possible, yeah. That's a beautiful story, though, about Which? the butterflies, the butterflies being associated with your grandmother. Oh, yes. Mm. Uh, I mean, it, it makes sense then, the lithograph. Oh, yes. Mm. Everything makes sense in relation to that. Yes. To some extent. Sure, yes. Yes. We might have to leave it there because... We can't have been talking for an hour. Okay. How did you find that? That was great. Right. <laughs> Really? How did you? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think it went well. Okay, good. Yeah. And so that was the interview with Carmel Bird. Mark, it sounds like Carmel really would like to have talked to you for longer. She seemed genuinely disappointed that you wound that interview up right there. Well, that was your fault, Steve, because you oh. said that we only had an hour to uh, do the interview, so I had to uh, cut it off. Well, what usually happens, folks, is that Mark uh, talks to our guests for about 
four hours <laughs> and asked me to edit down to 50 minutes. <laughs> Which I'm obviously um, eternally grateful for. I'm going to ask you a question, Mark. Yeah. All right. Okay. Question without notice. Sure. What do you think about when we talk about love? What do I think about when we talk Mm -hmm. about love? I think about attachment. Attachment. Yeah. When people speak about love, they're talking about attachment. And I guess the theory that resonates for me is that the attachment styles that we learn from our families, uh, our familial love, get transferred across to our uh, romantic relationships. The attachment theory for children was developed by some researchers called Ainsworth and Bowlby. And so it could be made up into attachment types that were either secure or insecure. And most people are a mixture of those. That's a very unromantic framework to view love. Well, you should speak Attachment to... theory. I mean, <laughs> people out there would be saying, Mark, come on, be more poetic. Uh, well, you should talk to my partner. Oh, yes. Yeah. She has a similar complaint. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Uh, that interview was done a little bit earlier this year. Let's be honest. And Carmel doesn't talk about a new book. Doesn't She's... she talk about The Skeleton Tree? Yeah, she does, but that's not a new book. She's got a new book called Field of Poppies. I don't think it had been released at the time of our interview. No, but she must have already written it, surely, because if it's going to be released in November, right. I would have thought that she could have given it a plug. But um, mm. wait, we give it a plug now. So anyway, Carmel Bird's new book, Field of Poppies, is going to be coming out, and it's uh, published by Transit Lounge. Mm. Sounds an interesting idea. It's going to be set in a fictional town called Muckleton. Muckleton. Don't you think that sounds a bit like Muckleford? That does sound very, very familiar. Yes, very familiar. Uh, A woman goes missing and I think there's going to be more skeletons in cupboards or buried in fields, I think, from the sounds of it. But I'll be looking forward to reading a book which quite obviously is set in central Victoria. But let's move on and uh, talk about who you're going to be talking to next week. So next week I'll be speaking to Professor Mehmet Alzap. Listeners to the series will know that uh, one of the central themes of this series is the relationship between the West and Islam. This is our first interview in relation to that, though, isn't it? Uh, In in relation to Islam and the West. Don't you think we touched upon it in the Benjamin Gilmore interview? Oh, yes, I suppose we talked about Afghanistan and the Taliban. I'd completely forgotten about that. Yes, you see. (laughs) Time goes on, doesn't it? But it's a very rich area. Hmm. Once again, I'm sure our listeners will find it very interesting. So join us next week at 4pm and remember the repeat at 9am on a Wednesday here on 94.9 Main FM when Dr. Mark Halloran is in conversation with Professor Mehmet Alsep. Deep Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Maine FM, Castle, Maine. Trouble Magazine would like to thank its sponsors. Ararat Gallery Tama, Bendigo Living Art Space, Fox Galleries Melbourne, Manningham Gallery, Swan Hill Regional Art Gallery, Wangaratta Art Gallery and Western Sydney University. Thanks for your support.